Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Podcast Public Service Announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. I'm sure all of us who managed to get through high school history class are more than familiar with the fact that chattel slavery is our nation's single greatest sin and tragedy, and that in many ways it lies at the historical base of the American experiment. It's the dark heart of the engine that helped develop and drive our economy in its earliest days. It makes liars and hypocrites of some of our greatest ideals and statesmen, especially Thomas. All men are created equal, but let's just ignore the fact that I own many of my fellow creatures and periodically rape and impregnate some of them. Jefferson, but there are many others. You don't need us to recapitulate the horrendous stain that slavery has left on our culture or the death, misery, and pain that it wrought throughout our history up to and including the moment of national reckoning that we're in the midst of in the summer of 2020 as we record this. There are more qualified voices than ours to help you on that score. What we want to focus on here is the paranoia and conspiracy thinking that the brute fact of slavery seemed to engender in white Americans, both North and South. Obviously, we have to start with the part of the country that has served as shorthand for the deliberate policy of enslaving, terrorizing, murdering, disenfranchising, impoverishing, and generally being dicks to anyone whose skin tone is darker than Jeff Sessions. The South. The former Confederacy. Though based on some of what Jesuit saw growing up, that former is open to interpretation. A.K.A. Dixieland, where Jesuit was born in, early on one frosty morning. A few things to keep in mind as we delve into this topic. One. During the colonial era, as well as the pre-Civil War period, it wasn't just those we traditionally think of as the slave states where people were kept in human bondage. In fact, we're going to get in-depth into the horrific legacy of slavery in that Yankee bastion, New York City. Two. On the other hand, by the time the nation really started to come apart at the seams in the 1850s over the question of slavery, the states that allowed it had neatly sorted to the point that the nation could be split into slave and free using a single, hypothetical demarcation between North and South. The one created by two surveyors back in the 18th century, the famous Mason-Dixon line. Three... So, while it seems obvious that the threat of rebellions by enslaved people would have captured the lurid and guilty imaginations of any number of slaveholders across the nascent United States over the years, the mental real estate where these concepts took up the most space belonged unquestionably to the South's planter class. That is, of course, because these are the men and women, but let's face it, mostly men who had constructed an entire economy completely predicated on the stolen labor of, eventually, millions of men, women, and children. 
And in order to facilitate that grotesque and monstrous crime over hundreds of years, these same people did everything in their power to ensure that they maintained sufficient political clout to keep the so-called peculiar institution going, even as the opinion of the rest of the country became ever less hospitable to slavery. You may recall such staples of U.S. history tests as the Three-Fifths Compromise, the Kansas-Missouri Compromise, and even the decision that each state should have two senators. All of these were efforts to allay the fears of Southern planters, who were constantly concerned that their preferred way of life would be made illegal or obsolete by the democratic and demographic might of the urbanized, anti-slavery northern states. Not to dwell on this, but while there were significant and growing numbers of right-thinking individuals throughout the decades who were involved in the abolitionist cause, and they were scattered around the northern states, Much of the anti-slavery sentiment came from working white people, primarily concerned with the problem of competing economically against free labor, and who couldn't give two shits about the freedom of dark-skinned fellow humans. It's not the most idealistic rationale, but at least it meant they were coincidentally on the right side of history. Anyway, we of course did our research on this, but before we get to the books, and in acknowledgement of the unique moment we're in culturally, we wanted to take a quick opportunity to highlight a truly remarkable podcast series, first aired a few years ago, that really helped us understand exactly how central fear and control of the enslaved black population, and then eventually fear and control of the nominally free, but still horribly oppressed population of black Americans post-Civil War. Anyway, how central this will to control and subjugate people was to the decisions made across many aspects of American life. The show is called Seen on Radio, and the series is called Seeing White. The title gets at what's particularly interesting about this series' perspective. Instead of analyzing our history by saying, how were black people treated, it first asks the question, how did we get the concept of whiteness in the first place? What was whiteness designed to support or defend? We're not going to tread on the ground they covered so well here, but we offer a quick excerpt discussing the origins of affirmative action, not as a 20th century program to help African Americans, but instead as an 18th century plan to provide tangible benefits to white indentured servants in order to keep them from allying themselves with enslaved Africans against the landowning classes. Second day. Ask you, how many of you are in here familiar with affirmative action? Good. So just about everybody has some idea about affirmative action. Can we agree that affirmative action was an executive order legislation that was giving people of color access to institutional opportunities um, by race and included gender? Is that just sort of the you know sort of core component of affirmative action? Who knows when it was legislated around the decade? You don't know, have, to, have to know the exact year, but what decade was that legislated? 70s? Everybody good with 70s? That would be the 1970s would be the century? Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're going to go, we'll, we'll go back and, and look at that in just a minute. She will return to question that premise, but for the moment, Dina goes on without missing a beat. How many of you are familiar with 40 Acres and a Mule? Who's familiar with that? Okay, so shortly after the Civil War, General Sherman signed an executive order allocating um, some land, 40 acres, to some formerly kidnapped and enslaved Africans in some places. And there's actually some documentation that there was some distribution of land, around 400,000 acres. Dina doesn't say this, but the implication seems clear. 40 acres and a mule could be called an early example of affirmative action or even reparations for the formerly enslaved African-American people. 
If only the government had made good on General Sherman's plan. What's less known is that was overturned a year later, and most of what was distributed was confiscated and returned to the original white owners. 1705, are you familiar with a statute in Virginia that required masters to give white indentured servants 50 acres of land, 30 shillings, 10 bushels of corn, and a musket? Anybody heard of that? It seems most people in the room, myself included, have not heard of that. Unlike the 40 acres and a mule for black people freed from slavery 160 years later, this gift of land, cash, and food for freed white indentured servants is not overturned. You might remember 1705 is the same year the House of Burgesses passed the Virginia Slave Codes. Those laws locked in a brutal system of white supremacy by giving slave owners sweeping rights to control and even torture the African people they owned and making it illegal for black people to employ white people. These two legislative moves, the slave codes and the payments for white indentured servants, drove a hard wedge between poor white and poor black people, who had sometimes joined forces against the white elite. Seriously, great show. Please check it out. Back to our topic. That is the overwhelming conspiracist bent that slavery drove in both its proponents and antagonists, at least among white people. Kerry Walters, in his book American Slave Revolts and Conspiracies, quotes historian Herbert Apthecker in estimating that, and we quote, North American slaves either overtly insurrected or conspired to rebel about 250 times. If you crunch the numbers, this means the entire period between the arrival of slaves in Virginia in 1619 and the end of legal slavery in 1865 averaged at least one rebellion per year. And given the urge by white slave-owning society to downplay these stories, thus avoiding encouraging other insurrections, the real number was, if anything, likely even larger. Depending on your age and the place where you were educated, you, like us, may have been given the impression that slaves accepted their lot in life or, in the even more horrifically distorted version, positively relished their carefree existence of toiling in manual labor until they died of exhaustion at the whims of an arbitrary and capricious pseudo-authority. That so many school kids had their heads filled with this bullshit is not an accident. Instead, it was the result of a deliberate effort by post-Civil War historians sympathetic to the Southern, i.e. white supremacist, cause, who conducted a nearly century-long campaign to excuse or glorify the Confederacy and its quote-unquote heroes. A campaign whose physical manifestations are all of those statues that are currently being rather abruptly decommissioned, by unofficial yet popular mandate. Around the country, protesters aren't waiting for cities and counties and are pulling down monuments to Confederate history, setting statues on fire and dragging others out of parks and public squares. The statue of Jefferson Davis was pulled down in Richmond. Walters, for example, quotes one Ulrich B. Phillips' 1918 book, American Negro Slavery, which described slaves as slow-witted children who would have been helpless without the paternalistic care of the white people who owned them. Where the fuck does this Phillips guy get off? I'm not sure. Uh, Hopefully the bottom floor of the elevator to hell. But we digress. Phillips and his ilk base their hilariously biased accounts on the diaries and correspondence of the very slave owners who had a vested interest in supporting this halcyon view of slavery. After all, thanks to their brutal campaign preventing slaves from achieving literacy, theirs was the only perspective that could actually be written down. 
In more recent decades, as historians move past hagiography for the purported beauty of the whitewashed antebellum era, I don't know nothing about birthing babies. A very different picture emerged, one of constant resistance by the repressed. In addition to the numerous outright insurrections we just referenced, Walters mentions that most of the resistance came from telling the master what he wanted to hear while actually subverting his wishes. This tended to work because, though we'll see that white slave owners distrusted slaves generally and constantly worried they would rebel, these same men tended to believe their own enslaved people were loyal to them, their good and kind masters. Fucking cracker-ass crackers. Wait, can I, can I say that? I'm pretty sure both our lily-white asses are safe delivering that well-deserved epithet. Of course, the real fear that haunted the sleepless nights of the slave owners was the specter of open rebellion by those they enslaved. This fear was, as Walters notes, complicated by the mutually contradictory views of their human chattels that these people held. Specifically, that they were both cunning brutes, capable of exerting murderous violence on their white masters at any moment, and at the same time, too ignorant and stupid to actually plan and execute this sort of open insurrection. More on this a little later, but students of the Third Reich, or, for that matter, listeners to our Protocols of the Elders of Zion episode, will recognize an echo of the Nazis' irreconcilable yet simultaneously held convictions. That Jews were mindless, rat-like vermin, on the one hand, and also brilliant, secret puppet masters controlling world events on the other. Conclusion. Racism makes you stupid. Of course, as we noted earlier, the planter class had good reason to fear the wrath of their African-American bondsmen and women. Walter's book is a chronicle of the frequently bloody reprisals that enslaved Americans wrought against the people and society that repressed them. Even the most impactful of these, like the one led by Nat Turner in Virginia in 1831, in which Turner, who seems to have been an intriguing combination of noble freedom fighter, Manson-esque Svengali of murderous acolytes, and apocalyptic Christian vision-having religious weirdo. Led his followers to kill 60 white men, women, and children as part of his attempt to instigate Christ's imminent return, didn't succeed in changing the hideous conditions that defined the lives of enslaved African Americans during the period. But they sure did scare the living shit out of white people. In fact, Walters points out that Turner's rebellion actually led to the Virginia legislature debating, for more than two months a slate of laws that would have led eventually to the elimination of slavery in the state, quoting the book. His thinking was clear. If there were not slaves, there would be no threat of white citizens having their throats cut as they slept. Solid reasoning, we suppose. But what the few large-scale revolts that actually led to white bloodshed did, more than anything, was feed a growing strain of paranoia among the slaveholding classes, so that when other plots were uncovered, as in the case of the so-called Cheneyville Conspiracy in 1837, in which one Lou Cheney... We know it's weird that Lou Cheney, the slave, happened to be from Cheneyville, as if the town was named after him. But that's because his owner was one David Cheney, a descendant of the man who had founded the town in the interior of Louisiana, and it was custom to give enslaved people the last name of their owners. It just never gets less sickening referring to people as having owners, does it? It does not. But the story goes that Lou confessed to fomenting a plot with a number of his fellows to arm themselves and murder every white person on the bayou. Now, it appears from the best sources that the actual plan, which Lou Cheney did indeed initiate, was to gather food and arms and escape west and south toward Mexico, where slavery had been abolished in 1829. He got cold feet after his compatriots and he had already begun stockpiling arms and provisions. Cheney and co. knew that they might have to fight their way to the border, 
but apparently had no intention of creating unnecessary violence. He ended up confessing not only that his group was planning an escape, but he also falsely added that other stuff about a planned, widespread, whitey side. This more terrifying story found ready reception in the local slave owners, who no doubt had the memory of Turner's rebellion still in their minds when they geared up a truly horrifying retribution for this uncommitted and in fact non-existent murder spree conspiracy. They kicked things off with some extrajudicial executions of those whom Lou Cheney fingered as members of the plot. Actually, I think the term for extrajudicial executions is lynching. Fair enough, but Walters notes that two other elements stirred things into a real frenzy. First, the suggestion by Cheney that his men were debating whether only to murder the white men or whether also to kill women and children, as Turner's men had. The second was the discovery that one of the slaves was carrying correspondence from Boston businessman Arthur Tappan, a prominent abolitionist. Walters again. That one of the arrested slaves had been in contact with Tappan convinced authorities that the plot to murder them in their sleep had been carefully crafted and financed by Northerners bent on destroying the institution of slavery. Quickly, nine slaves and three freedmen were lynched. Then a couple of the condemned confessed that their supposed conspiracy stretched all the way to New Orleans, leading the state government to declare a full-scale insurrection, dispatching troops to protect Nacogdoches, 55 miles away, from an imaginary uprising. In Alexandria, the nearest town of any size to Cheneyville, troops arrived soon, ostensibly to protect the white citizenry. They actually ended up protecting the enslaved from the enslavers, releasing most of those who had been crammed into the local jail, ending the mob mentality, and restoring law and order, much to the chagrin of some of the local vigilantes. Now, it wasn't just Southerners who were losing their minds over slavery conspiracies. For abolitionists and other Northerners who opposed the practice, though, the terms of the conspiracy were quite different. Thomas Conda tackles this topic in his book, Conspiracies of Conspiracies, where he establishes that, for the most part, the Yankees railing against the slave power had things essentially right. That is, the Southern planter class had, through various structures intrinsic to the Constitution and underpinnings of American government, managed to wield power out of all proportion to their state's populations. As noted earlier, this included the infamous decision to count each enslaved person as three-fifths of a person for purposes of representation in the Congress and for taxation, meaning, in essence, that the southern states, which of course didn't let slaves vote, got significantly more seats in the House of Representatives than they would have based on their free populations. Combined with the fact that each state gets two senators, regardless of its population, this had the effect of tilting the balance of power in favor of the Dixie slave owners. So there was, indeed, a slave power conspiracy, though it was pretty much out in the open for anyone who understood the workings of the federal government. As Conda notes, though, some took this further, trying to build a more robust worldview centered around the machinations of the enslavers. Episodes from American history were retrofitted to accommodate a belief that the slave power had long been operating behind the scenes. Making the most out of the commercial affinity between the South and Great Britain, the War of 1812 was reinterpreted with conspiratorial implications. This retrofitting was extended to the earliest years of the nation and to institutions such as the Bank of the United States, with the argument that the true purpose of the bank was to support slavery. Dramatic events such as the 1835 assassination attempt on President Andrew Jackson could be made to fit into the slave power conspiracy well. Of course, eventually, the entire question of slavery boiled over, leading to the state of affairs that obtained in 1860 on the eve of the Civil War. 
In a 2020 cover article in the venerable Atlantic, a publication that was actually around when that war started, described the situation in the South thus. Newspapers reported that the newly elected president, Abraham Lincoln, held a hatred of the South and its institutions that would cause him to use all the power at hand to destroy our country, and that his vice president, Hannibal Hamlin, was not only sympathetic to the plight of black Americans, but was himself part black. Warnings circulated in pamphlets and the press that an anti-slavery federal government would inspire a wave of violent slave revolts and then allow the South to burn, rather than stepping in to quell resistance. Texas Declaration of Succession asserted that northern abolitionists had for decades been sending emissaries to bring blood and carnage to our firesides. Georgias insisted that the avowed purpose of Republican leaders was to subvert our society and subject us not only to the loss of our property, but the destruction of ourselves, our wives and our children, and the desolation of our homes and our altars. Anna Necklison, the piece's author, notes with a nod toward our own conspiracy-addled times that when the richest, most prominent people, important officials, and major publications embrace conspiracy theories, all the while stamping out competing, more rational voices, well, in that case, the false narrative can become the foundation for a real regime. A scenario that, unfortunately, is all too familiar at the moment. To complete our look at the slavery conspiracies and how they connect with some other early American stupidity, we turn to a fascinating, horrific story, in which we discover the terror the slavers held for those they enslaved was widespread, and in fact perhaps reached its apotheosis in, of all places, New York City, way back in the 1740s. For this tale, we return to historian Jill Lepore, who already cataloged the damage of King Philip's War for us previously. In her excellent book, New York Burning, Liberty, Slavery, and Conspiracy in 18th Century Manhattan, she notes that in New York, in the middle of that century, one in every five people were enslaved, making it, in her memorable phrase, second only to Charleston, South Carolina, in a wretched calculus of urban unfreedom. Lepore reports how, in the early months of 1741, ten fires swept through the city, prompting a prominent resident to declare that the fires had been set on foot by some villainous confederacy of latent enemies amongst us. The suspicion of the city's white population immediately turned toward, you guessed it, the slaves. And you might expect you'd know what the result would be, but whatever you're thinking, the actual result was honestly worse than you could imagine. Quoting Lepore, Tried and convicted before the colony's Supreme Court, 13 black men were burned at the stake. Seventeen more were hanged, two of their dead bodies chained to posts not far from the Negro's burial ground, left to bloat and rot. One jailed man cut his own throat. Another eighty-four men and women were sold into yet more miserable, bone-crushing slavery in the Caribbean. Two white men and two white women, the alleged ringleaders, were hanged, one of them in chains. Seven more white men were pardoned on condition that they never set foot in New York again. As you might have guessed, the evidence that underpinned these horrific murders, suicides, enslavements, hangings, and exiles was, at best, tenuous. The confessions wrought from the accused came after long internment in horrific conditions, and they sound over the top, at least to our ears. And having for some time drank, they said to one another, let's set fire to the town and kill the white people. Their owners dead, the city in flames, the men who pledged to the plot were to assemble just north of the fort into companies under their appointed captains, Ben, Jack, York, Dundee, and Othello, and burn their way up Broadway. It was horrid. It was monstrous. It was wicked. 
It was inhuman, but it was also hackneyed. What those 81 New Yorkers confessed to was a plot dripping with plot, ripe to bursting with familiar characters and contrivances. So, was there anything to this confession? As Lepore discusses in a lecture and reading, it's very hard to say. While we have incredibly detailed information about the white society that tried these people, we know next to nothing about the people themselves, or their lives, or their perspectives. The confessions are really corrupt kind of evidence. They, uh, these black men generally, most of them didn't speak English as a first language, so the confessions are translated, and almost none of them knew how to write. In the original confessions, none of them are signed or written in the handwriting of these guys who are confessing, right? So someone else is translating their words, and then someone else is writing their words down, and then they might, if they testify in any way, sign this document with an X. So from any kind of contemporary legal point of view, from some standard of evidence that we might have in a court of law, these confessions are worthless, absolutely worthless. From a historian's point of view, they're, they're also pretty worthless because they're so coerced. Except for the aforementioned heavily coerced confessions, we just don't know enough to say for sure. What had definitely happened was that a bunch of fires had started, a conspiracy by the slaves was suspected, and the suspicions of the authorities fell upon John Hewson, a poor white tavern keeper whose business was frequented by lower-class whites as well as slaves and freed blacks. Already in the authorities' sites for fencing stolen property, a crime he was very likely guilty of, an interrogation of his 16-year-old Irish servant girl led her to confess, under pressure, that Hewson had encouraged slaves to revolt, murder their masters, and burn down the town, the various fires being the proof of the seriousness of their aims. The involvement of Hewson was as it turns out, key to making the conspiracy cohere in the minds of white society. As we discussed earlier, the same men who would condemn so many slaves to death for plotting were also desperate to prove that the plot was the work of a white man in order to maintain the cognitive dissonance that allowed the slave-owning society to at once say that the slaves among them were constantly conspiring and preparing to slit their masters' throats, but at the same time remain convinced that those same slaves were so intellectually inferior to their masters that they deserved to be enslaved, that it was for their own good, because they were incapable of handling their own affairs. In other words, they were cunning animals who would take any opportunity to engage their base lusts for power, murder, and rape, but they were too stupid to put together a plan without the guidance of a white man. Obviously, this is ridiculous, internally contradictory, and an absurd set of ideas to hold. A master might entrust the most complex affairs of his household to one of the men he's enslaved. And yet, also, he must, in order to excuse his own ownership of a fellow human being, consider this same super-competent enslaved man almost a child who must be guided by his master's attentive and firm hand. But if you're going to be so hideously immoral as to think slavery is okay, that is apparently the only option available to you. Lepore quotes the prosecuting attorney in one of the slave trials. Gentlemen, it cannot be imagined that these silly, unthinking creatures could of themselves have contrived and carried on so deep, so direful and destructive a scheme. The enslaved plotters were accused of planning to overthrow and slaughter white men before declaring one of their own, governor, and another, a king, 
All of this happening during a series of drunken feasts where they met, swore oaths to the plot, kissed a sacred book, and discussed their strategy. Lepore notes that perhaps one reason why the lurid details of these seemingly coerced confessions were plausible to the upper-class, white, slave-owning New Yorkers of the time was precisely that these same white men who fancied themselves to be plotted against were almost all members of various gentlemen's clubs where extensive play-acting, heady oaths, rituals, and drunken nonsense were par for the course. The whole idea of the conspiracy may have been a sort of extended riff or parody of these all-white clubs. If this is true, then, as Lepore suggests, it may have started as something like a prank, but then gotten all out of proportion. Or perhaps there was indeed a plot of some kind, maybe even one in which some of the enslaved actually set a fire or two. Incidentally, if you're made to be a slave, it would seem perverse in the extreme not to expect you to harbor wishes to destroy the wealth and even the lives of those who enslave you, wouldn't it? But if it was a prank that got out of hand, that prank would have been a very specific sort of parody, a parody of a certain secret society that was already an obsession among conspiracy-minded colonials and would only become more so in the early United States. That society, of course was the Masons. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.